Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I am here with Zad, the numerical value of Zad in Chaldean numerology is three. Uh, our guest today is Pastor Brian Schmidt uh, from Trinity in Caledonia. So uh, good. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. This is very exciting. I appreciate you having me on the show today. Now, no one else wanted to be on, so it was up to you, Doug. <laughs> We're scraping the bottom of the <laughs> no, barrel today, for at, sure. <laughs> not at all. Uh, so Brian, how long have you been at Trinity in Caledonia? And tell us about what ministry is like out there. And this is what I asked Dave Wershke when he was on as our guest. What's it like ministering in Nirvana in Caledonia? In Nirvana, yes. <laughs> My esteemed associate. I'm sure he had many good things to say. Um, I have been at Trinity Caledonia for five years. We are a large uh, church. I guess you could say that we're rural. We're right between Oak Creek and Racine kind of close to Mount Pleasant, um, a church of about a thousand members. We have a school of about 200 children. And, you know, I guess it's it's that busy, large church sort of thing where there's a lot going on with the school, a lot going on with our members. Um, as far as day-to-day ministry, a lot of time spent in school, a lot of time spent ministering to school families, shut-ins, things like that. Um, as COVID is now in the rearview mirror, Lord willing, we're getting back to normal with some of those things too, which is nice. You, you mentioned your associate that we had on, uh, Dave Wershke, and um, he did not say anything bad about you. Um, I don't think he mentioned you at all, actually. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder, he spends every day probably going, how did I get stuck with this guy? <laughs> no, we, we get along very well. He's, he's spending time cleaning his office. <laughs> yes, I, no comment. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about your uh, previous call before coming to Caledonia. You were, uh, you were starting a new mission, is that right? We were considered to be a multi-site ministry. So if you're familiar with central Wisconsin, there is a church in the city of Mauston, which is called St. Paul's. Um, you'll know Mauston if you're on the interstate going towards Minnesota. That's the, there, there's the quick trip there with the upside-down semi that is part of their sign. That's Mauston. And uh, Mauston is in Juneau County, which would be just west of the Wisconsin River. And then just east of the Wisconsin River is Adams County. And uh, the good people in Mauston discovered around 2008 that Adams County uh, is about 85% unchurched, and they decided to do some exploratory work there, and that led to me being assigned there in 2012 as the the full-time pastor, technically, in Adams, but the third pastor of St. Paul. So we were multi-site, St. Paul's Mauston, Adams Friendship. So one of the things, Brian, is that, you know, that was multi-site, and obviously we here at Water of Life are multi-site. And the way we do it is that we didn't want to have one pastor to be the campus pastor because we felt that if we had a campus pastor at the Caledonia campus and a campus pastor at the Racine campus, it would feel like we're two, two, two churches that are just kind of playing at being together. Whereas the way we do it is I'm going from one church, one campus and preaching there one Sunday and the other campus the other Sunday so we can kind of uh, see that we are together. So, But you didn't do that. You were kind of one campus pastor. So what was the benefit of doing it that way? Um, uh, the biggest benefit I saw was just the relationship building. Um, as I began there, 
I would preach in Mauston about once a month. And then as more and more people were joining our church in Adams, they, you know, viewed me, uh, they viewed me as the pastor there. Um, so, you know, just as far as those, those relationships were concerned, we felt it was important for me to be in Adams more of the time. I was teaching Bible information class to these people, you know, spending time at their homes and whatnot. And uh, if they would come on Sunday and see a different guy, sometimes it would be confusing. So um, early on, I preached in Mauston more, but then later on, spent more of my time in Adams. What what did you guys do as a congregation to foster that you were one congregation even though you were multi-site? We made sure that there were people from both sites in leadership positions. Um, we made sure to monthly send a member from Adams down to Mauston so that that person could tell the congregation down there the good things that were happening at their other site up in Adams. And that was always well received. I mean, I could say anything I wanted to, and they go, oh, well, of course, pastor's going to say those things. But when they could put a face to what was going on in Adams, that was really awesome. We tried to do joint things um, so that both uh, people from both places were together. And then just in the way we spoke, we're one congregation with two locations. We we would say that all the time. And uh, we started putting that in our bulletins, our publications and things too. This is who we are. We're a multi-site congregation. I've got a topic that uh, may seem like it's coming out of left field, but uh, it, it, it is something actually that uh, has come up recently uh, on the high school campus. And um, it, it has to do with... Uh, vulgarity and uh well you know four letter words and and it's something that the kids kind of talked to because i kind of made a a chapel announcement where i said hey you know let's let's clean up our language here let's i don't want to hear any four letter words in the hallways and things and uh we had a discussion in religion class where somebody was talking about how she didn't think that it was right per se but it didn't specifically bother her to you know to hear people use that kind of language and I'm just wondering, maybe this is for either of you, um, what is it that, what do you think is the best way to uh, handle that as, as a pastor? Like when, when believers are confronted with people who this is uh, how they talk on a regular basis, um, I think of a, a pastor that was my nearest neighbor in Kansas who would tell me about this neighbor of his that uh, just constantly was you know, using foul language, but it, it was almost like if I scold him about that, it's it's going to be, yeah, I'm going to have to do it every, you know. It, wh- where does the, God says not to, to use, uh, the Paul tells us not to, to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but at the same time, um, I don't know, how, what's the best way to handle that as a pastor? Or, or if our members are confronted with that, uh, what encouragement can we offer them? I think you just model how a Christian does talk and pray that that will start rubbing off on the people around you. Um, I can tell from some raw ministry experiences, I've had some raw evangelism experiences where that was a normal way of talking. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to model this is how God's people talk. and um, Because I think you're right. If you start with, if the first thing you say to someone is, (laughs) "That's, that's foul language, they might not know that. And now you've maybe put a barrier there that doesn't need to be there. But as you talk about Jesus more and more, I, I learned that some of those maybe rough things worked themselves out just naturally. But mm. you had to really be patient with people. And 
you know, sometimes uh, the things you heard, you bristled a little bit at and thought, oh boy, uh, <laughs> or, or uh, if someone would say things at Bible class that were maybe a little rough and I'd be like, I'm going to have to clean up the pieces after this one. But, you know, we're going to love this person and we're going to demonstrate to them how God's people talk. And you eventually get to the point with people where you can say, no, that's really not language that should be coming out of a Christian's mouth. Hmm. One of the things that I do when I teach the second commandment in my catechism class is I show a YouTube video of Tim Hawkins, uh, who's a Christian comedian, and he's got like 100 Christian cuss words. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember one of the dads texted me and said, hey, my son said this to my other son. And then he said, when I called him on, a pastor said it was okay. And I said, I didn't say it was okay. I said, these are the words that he said, because they're not bad words. They're, uh, you know, that, you know, great googly moogly, just making up weird, weird Sounds. words that we that yeah. we Christians do. So listeners, go ahead and listen to it. It's like seven or eight minutes of YouTube. And I, and I try and remind people uh, that when they use those kind of words, there there is emotion, but I always tell them, too, you don't sound smart when you use those kind of words. Mm-hmm. You're intelligent people. Use better words to describe what you're saying instead of these three or four four-letter words to describe it. Yeah, that's kind of the point I was trying to make was like, hey, you, you are intelligent kids. Uh, you don't need to get people's attention by shocking them, you can get people's attention by, you know, finding finding more intelligent words. Um, but I, I do I do like that point because I think I struggled with that when I was a younger pastor, of um, that if you give people the impression right off the bat, like you shouldn't say that, it, it's it they may walk away thinking, oh, the Christian religion is about as long as I don't use these words, I'm a good person, and we don't we do not want to give that impression. I remember. When I was at Fort Knox, and we had Jared Sunstall on as a guest a, f- a few mo- a weeks ago. And when I was down in Kentucky, Jared and I had gone golfing, and Jared had brought one of his friends along, uh, both in the military. And we were on the last hole of 18 holes, and it was a uh, very tough green. It was two tiers. And the, the friend putted it up, and I was standing right next to him, and it went almost all the way up and then rolled down. And he said something in German. <laughs> and then he said... Oh, I'm sorry. And, well, Jared, uh, well, he said, do you know German? I said, yeah. And I really, I had high school German. I didn't really know what he said. So Jared talked to him later on when he got in the vehicle and said, what did you say? And he told him what it was and what it meant in German. And he yelled, Jared yelled at him. He said, you don't ever say something like that around my pastor. And you know, people will say that all the time. I'm sure to you too. Oh, I'm sorry, Pastor. If they if they let out a swear a swear word when you're close by, it's, oh, I haven't heard that word before, but I can <laughs> I can right. I can deal with it. But I think it's their conscience is bothering them, and then gently trying to uh, help them with their sanctification is yeah. You, you don't want to talk like that, but you are going to let it slip, and then you know work at it because we're. On, we're always not on a a level. We're always going to get better in our sanctification, but going up and down in sanctification, we're always going to sin, and we're always going to be forgiven. So my daughter is sitting to my left. You can't see that out there, but she's five. And if I would say the word "stupid," for example, 
Well, she the, just looked at me. Yeah. I got the eyes. <laughs> got the big right? eyes yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, I guess that's what we teach in our house. Even, you know, words like that where someone would say, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Um, yep. That would yep. be another. Or example. shut up. Our house was shut up. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You were yep. not allowed to say shut up. <laughs> right. <laughs> we had a lady in Adams um, who. The first time she came to church, she had a Miller Lite T-shirt on, and you know some people were shocked by that. And my my um, encouragement to them was, okay, we're just going to love her, and we understand that that's maybe making some of us uncomfortable, but she's here. We're going to be thankful for that, and it, you know we're going to keep on preaching and teaching, and we're just going to see what the Holy Spirit does, and I think it's going to work itself out naturally. And sure enough, it did. I mean, she uh, went to one of the stores in town and bought herself a couple of nice sweaters after a while, just unprompted. It's just what she wanted to do, and she came to church with those later on, very proud of how she looked when she came to church. So I... I think just the way we we work with people and and let the Holy Spirit kind of work some of those things out, you know, as far as sanctification goes. And one of the things I again I teach in catechism classes, I said my girls have never heard me swear. Although I was talking with one of my college daughters, and I did let out not a swear word, but you know, not a nice word, but I was reading something, and she goes, "I've never heard you say that word," and that's what I tell. Uh, that's what I tell the kids. And my girls have never ever heard me swear. I've never heard my dad swear. Uh, he's gotten mad, mm-hmm. but he's never sworn. And and I tell him too is because I'm very careful on my language because I don't want to speak one way at home. And then if something happens and I let out a four letter word, and my big fear always is that I'm up doing communion and getting the elements right, and then I spilled a common cup on my white gown. And then the microphone's live, and I let out that four-letter word. Mm-hmm. And now what have I done to my whole reputation, to the congregation, and so forth? But I would never say that because I've always trained myself not to say it. And it's just learning anything with sanctification, how you dress, how you act, how you live, how you speak. is It's a learned process. So you and uh, Pastor Schmidt and I were in—I don't think we were ever in the same class, but we were in very— Close classes mm-hmm. to each other in college and, and seminary. Well, that's because Brian was like in the in classes with like what ten? Uh, just three, just, just three, three classes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but my other classmate, who was in the same class with me from prep, is now at uh, at uh, Adams Friendship. Oh yeah, right? Jasper. Selma. Jasper, yeah. yeah. And uh, he's he's been through quite a few classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, no, I, I was bringing it up because. Um, I forgot why I was bringing well, it up. Well, while you're thinking of that, well, uh, Pastor. Oh, Reckley. oh, oh! Somebody, somebody that uh, shall remain nameless, but was in in your class, and then later I was in that class um, during his vicar year. Uh, had a service that he was leading, and his supervising pastor was uh, preaching, I think, and and he was leading the service, and he just messed everything up in the whole service. He was blundering and, and stumbling all over the place with his with his words and reading the, the readings and so forth. And then he uh, walked into the sacristy after the service was done with his uh, supervising pastor and, and looked at him and said, well, I don't think that could have gone any worse if I'd been reading out of the book of Satan. And um, his microphone was still Whoops. on. <laughs> Mike's on. First down. Yep. <laughs> well, the reason I was going to mention Pastor Reckley with that is uh, Pastor Reckley is at First Evan that we Water of Life shares our school with, and he just had and returned the call to be at Moston. That's right, he did. Yep. 
Yeah, um, the people in Austin just saw a great opportunity for ministry in Adams, and and it was a unique thing. It was an old established church that wanted to reach out to a neighboring community, and because of that, we were able to tap into all the resources that a big congregation has. So, well, one thing, Brian, have you been contacted about, are, are you going to be on the ballot to run against me on the, no. for the district mission board? I will be on the ballot. I didn't know that I was running yeah, against you. Yeah, you're running you. against well. me. So I am campaigning for, for you to take <laughs> oh, my place. Well, thank you. But one of the things with that, before we get into the gospel lesson, is thinking as district mission board, why do you think it might be a good thing for our congregations to look at doing multi-site? Because down in Kenosha, uh, those four congregations down there all merged to become one here at Water of Life. New Hope and Epiphany merged to become one church in two locations. What you're talking about in uh, Boston and Adam's Friendship started as one congregation, added a second site. Why do you think that might be a way for our congregations to be to looking at? I think it's pooling resources. Um, so that you have financial resources, you have manpower to just get more done. I think if churches look at it more from a, I'm not doing multi-site so that we survive. I'm doing multi-site so that we flourish and can get more gospel ministry done. I think that's really the right way to go about it. Um, and, and again, you can just get more done with more people involved and um, pooling things together. Maybe even uh, churches from different communities that are able to work together to reach out to more people. It's amazing what we learned in Adams and Austin that things that can get done when God's people kind of, you know, join together in those ways to do a lot. Yeah, because that's one of the things that we've been talking about here, and I'm glad our our leaders are so much uh, in the mindset of going towards that second pastor we've been calling for a year and a half. And could I do the work here by myself? Yeah, I could do early service at one campus, go to the next campus, come back, or have one camp, one service early at Racine, later at Caledonia, and do the things by myself. But they all realized we would just be surviving. We wouldn't have the, I wouldn't have the energy and the time to do all the outreach to be able to thrive. And our leaders are saying, we need to thrive. This is the time that we merge specifically to do what you said, to pool our resources. The big thing I always said was, what can we do better together than we're doing separately? Mm -hmm. We're already doing the exact same things. Every church does the exact same things. But why not do more by having two guys, instead of duplicating, we talked about multiplying ministry. Yep. So one quick example, Um, it was my goal to knock on every door in Adams and Friendship every other year. Now, to get that done, you need a lot of people. Well, it was real easy for me. I would just go down to Mauston and tell everybody this is what we're going to do on two Saturdays, and they would all come up, and we could just we could get so much work done, and and then we gained members through that too, just knocking on doors. Rather than if I'm a home mission somewhere and I've got to get a a, a a college you know a team of college students down, not that that's a bad thing, but there's a lot of maybe more effort and whatnot that goes into that as opposed to everybody in Mauston was there and ready to go. All right. Ready? Sure. We're reading uh, John chapter 10. Our gospel is uh, John 10, beginning with verse 22. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, 
and Jesus was walking in the temple area in Solomon's colonnade. So the Jews gathered around Jesus, asking, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I am doing in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, Brian, what do you think? Were the Jewish leaders honestly asking Jesus if he was the Messiah, or are they trying to trap him? (laughs) I think, generally speaking, they were trying to trap him. Were there a few curious ones there? Probably. Um, But Jesus has said some shocking things in Jerusalem already up to this point. Um, I think a few chapters earlier, he said, I, uh, before Abraham was born, I am. Um, and so he, he's tossed out some of these things. And the, the Jewish leaders are thinking, who is this guy? And how can he say things like this? Um, so I would say trying to trick them. Maybe a few are curious. Okay. Because if, they, if he said that out loud, then they would have a clear-cut blasphemy case. Mm-hmm. They could say, okay, now we get to stone you to death because you said it out loud. Which is, I, I think it's an interesting thing because people, yeah, especially critics of Christianity, will try to say, um, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Uh, and explicit, like in so many words, no, he did never say, I am God. But uh, he, he was leading a sinless life. He didn't uh, want to commit a blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he certainly said enough other things that made it clear that he is God. Um, and this is this is one of them, right? And you know, like you said, Jeremy, about wanting to stone him. That's verse thirty-one. The text stops before that, but uh, when he answered, they did try to stone him for blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just had this conversation with a gentleman yesterday. Uh, grandfather had come in to chapel, and I sat down and talked to him for a half hour. Had a great outreach visit right in the church. You can't, you can't just leave him if, if a pro- God brings a prospect into the church. You just got to keep talking to him. Right. And we talked about some things, and one of them we talked about was you know, Jesus as the Messiah. And I said, you know, I've started telling people that, you know, you'll have people that will say, well, my Jesus, you know, he would be liberal or my Jesus, he'd accept for abortion. He would accept homosexuality. And then the question to ask then is, well, is your Jesus the son of God? Just ask, is your Jesus God's son? If not, then your your Jesus isn't the real Jesus. So I don't, it doesn't even matter what you're talking about with whatever you think your Jesus supports. He's not the real Jesus. And the real Jesus, like you said, Jeremy, is God's son. If you, if you say he's God's son, then we have a conversation about, all right, now what did he really say, not what you made, or making up that he said. Mm-hmm. So, Jeremy, why didn't these Jews believe in Jesus? Uh, well, Jesus says, you are not my sheep. Uh, you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. Um, so, uh, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Uh, they, they, weren't, they weren't listening to him and and you can be not listening even even if you're processing words 
or, or, you know, sound waves are hitting your eardrums from somebody else's voice, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are listening. Um, and, and so they, they may have been grabbing that. That's usually how people communicate with each other. It's by, it, I'm not so much listening to you as I'm trying to think of the next thing that I'm going to say. And then, uh, I better make sure that it kind of fits with what you were just saying. So I'll listen a little bit, but I, they weren't really listening. And maybe even listening in a way where they're hoping he says that one thing we want to hear so that we can be upset and pick up our stones and chuck them at him, you know, um, and and dismissing everything else, perhaps. It's a, like a, a confirmation bias, really, mm-hmm. like where you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the research that I want to do in order to find the results that I want to find. Yep. Well, with that, then, then, Brian, with those results, in verses 28 or 29 and 30, why would the Jews have gotten ticked at Jesus' comments when he's talking about his relationship with his father? Because the father is God, and if Jesus and the father are one, then Jesus has just claimed to be God. And in a way, has answered their question, I guess. Are you the Christ? Well, yeah, um, this is who I am. I and the father are one. I am God, which is why they picked up their stones again right after he said that, because that was blasphemy. I'm going to wade into some water that I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't know a lot about. Do either of you, uh, have either of you had a, a lot of experience with um, Jehovah's Witnesses? Not very much. <laughs> the only <laughs> time I can think of uh, really having a lo- really long conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, this just came up in my news feed on, uh, for Facebook, because I'm old, so we use Facebook, is uh, Easter Vigil. So Easter Saturday, several years ago, had to be at least six years ago when I was still living in Sturdivant. I didn't realize it was even wearing this when the door doorbell rang. Uh, Jehovah's Witness lady came to the door and started talking to me on the day before Easter. What I was wearing were my camouflage pants and a shirt with a big handgun on it that's, that one of my members gave me because I have four daughters. And it said, guns don't kill people. Dads with daughters kill people. <laughs> And that's what I'm wearing when she comes to the door. And then, so I don't know if she didn't want to listen to anything I said because of the shirt I was wearing or because I was just talking about Jesus being God because it got to the point she was getting upset. She's the one that brought up the Lord's Supper. Hmm. And she's and she went like this and with her finger out in the air. You mean you can just gnaw on Jesus like I'm gnawing on my finger? No, that's not the same thing. But... But I, instead of, like, I always challenge my members, instead of hiding behind the sofa when the doorbell rings, when the Jehovah's Witness come, I figured I shouldn't do that. I should go out and actually talk to her and share the gospel with her. So. Well, the reason I brought it up is because I I haven't heard this personally, but I've heard Jehovah's Witnesses will have a, a kind of a prefabbed, canned answer for this passage when you say, I and the Father are one. And it's something like... Um, the oneness is a oneness of uh, volition or, or of uh, attitude, that they are one in their, they both have the same goal in mind. They want to save people's souls or they both have the same uh, emotions. They're one in their emotions. And uh, how would you respond to a, a criticism like that or an interpret, I should say an interpretation like that, that says, oh yeah, yeah, we believe that, Jesus and the Father are one. They are one in their 
their their objectives. They're unified in their emotions. But there's if that is the case, then they're still two separate people. So my wife and I might be of the same mindset all the time. We might, uh, as if we have to, my daughter sitting next to me, if we have to discipline on occasion, um, we find that we both uh, would say or do the same thing. We're of the same mind, same will, but yet we're still two separate entities, aren't we? Um, and yet, if Jesus and the Father are one, they have to be God. Um, they that they have to be the same, not just of will, but of essence. Mm-hmm. And then I would read the Athanasian Creed to them. Ooh, always yeah. fun to do. Yeah, so I, I won't read all of it, but just these kind of questions. Uh, paragraph 15 was really nice in the new blue hymnal is the paragraphs are are numbered, so you can kind of point to them. So starting with verse, paragraph 15, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet they're not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet they're not three lords, but one Lord. Uh, skipping a few, uh, the Father is neither made nor created nor begotten of anyone. The Son is neither made nor created, but is begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And then it talks about there's three persons, but they're co-eternal and co-equal. So then every way, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. And just over and over again, just pounding that unity, like you were saying, Brian, even if they're united in will, it's more than that. To be united in will, you can even go that way. If he has to be united in will and you're perfectly united in will, the only way to be perfectly united in will with God is to be God. I I'm, I just was looking back at the verses and, and it says, um, no one can snatch, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then uh, later on, just a verse after that, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And so you could also point out, uh, snatching them out of Jesus' hand is the same thing as snatching them out of the father's hand. Uh, that, that only reinforces the oneness of essence. And with that verse, I just talked about that verse in my seventh grade catechism class today, because uh, knowing this text is coming up this Sunday, and asking, well, your son is the one that answered this, uh, because I asked, well, what does it say at the bottom of our Good Shepherd stained glass window? And it says, no one shall pluck them out of my hand. Uh, and I asked them what that meant, and they got it right, and saying, well, if because well, we were talking about temptation with the sixth and seventh petitions of the Lord's Prayer, that I said, when you're tempted, so what, what can happen? And one, one young lady said, well, you can run toward the temptation. And I said, yeah, and that's where the, the devil as a roaring lion or his demons as, as wolves, that's when you're, they'll get you. But w- when you're close by the good shepherd, by his feet as the, the dozen sheep pictured in our stained glass window or by him, the, the lion and the wolf, they're not going to come by. Or the two lambs that are in his hands, the devil, as mighty as he is, he can't rip any kid or anyone out of Jesus' hands because he's God. And so as long as you're by God and you run to him when temptation comes, you're safe. No one can pluck them out of my hands. And doesn't it happen in life too sometimes that we've got a really good... Um, 
we've got a really good plan to do a sin of some kind, and then God will maybe in some way intervene so that all of our plans to sin fall apart. And is that part of it too, that he has snatched us away from that potential, uh, I don't know, sin, if you will? I, I just think those things happen in our lives sometimes where God says, no, we're, we're not going to do that one. Um, God's saving us from ourselves, if you will. Yeah, there's really a, a strong uh, use that you can make of this reading for election, for predestination, that no one can snatch them out of my hand, um, that, that you, are, you are secure, you are safe. It's, it's a done deal from before the foundation of the world. Um, he, he knows his sheep. That's, that's often used for, for predestination. He knows his sheep. We, we don't know who the elect are. We, we just got to preach and uh, the Holy Spirit brings them in, but uh, he knows who his believers are. And then I try and bring up to our members too with this with this text that again we have the stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd, two lambs in his arms, a dozen sheep around him, and then at the bottom of the window it says, "No one shall pluck them out of my hand." But underneath that, on the altar, it says, "Lo, I am with you always." Members always say, "Well, it's missing the S." Well, it was King James, but. To bring that up, that's why no one can pluck them out of my hands because Jesus says, I'm with you always. As long as I am with you and you're with me, you're safe. It's when you're away from me, that's when the temptation or, as we pray, deliver us from evil or Luther said in his large catechism, deliver us from the evil one, Satan, that's when he gets us. Anything else you want to bring up on the gospel lesson? I, there's there's so much that uh, I don't know if it would, yeah. Well, and leading up to this reading too, um, Jesus has said, "I am" many many times, like "I am the good shepherd," um, and it's kind of a unique thing to the Gospel of John, actually, where Jesus will just say, "I am this," "I am that," and how much of that was Jesus trying to get at this whole "I am," "I and the Father are one" thing, um, that "I am the Messiah," "I am the Christ," but just dropping "I am." every once in a while and uh making it clear here too well i think i don't know if it's uh in this lectionary but i, I remember previous lectionaries you'd have um it, like john 8 would be the gospel before abraham was born i am uh, and then the old testament reading would be the burning bush and uh god saying to moses i am who i am um there's there's that constant uh, solidarity with the Old Testament God of uh, that follows through on his promises. And one other thought I had, if you're preaching on this text, do you bring up the festival of dedication at all? The fact that, you know, that was kind of a great act of deliverance that was important to the Jewish people. And now they ask Jesus, are you the Christ? And, you know, what was their expectation of the Messiah? What kind of deliverance are you here to bring to us? Are there any connections there worth bringing up or not? Could you could you talk more about the feast of dedication? Yeah, I, well, it's Hanukkah, I would, isn't it? I, I would I would say if you your original question would I bring it up? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much you. It's Hanukkah, isn't it? The feast it of is. dedication. Okay. It is. So when when uh, um, Antiochus, I don't know how you say his name, Epiphanes or Epiphanes yeah. or however you say that, he desecrated the temple um, in that intertestamental time period, and then 
And there was the whole Maccabean thing that went on around that, right? December of 16 or 165 BC. Oh, there you go. So, and, and it does say it was winter. Um, yes. I mean, you know, and if the Jews are there celebrating that act of deliverance and Jesus has been around town for some time, it seems like when you flip back a few chapters and he's been saying all this stuff about I am and I'm uh, before Abraham was born, I am and all this stuff. And, and, and so that's on their minds already. And they ask him, are you the Christ? You know, what kind of deliverance is coming through you? I don't know. Or maybe, maybe that's not well, worth mentioning. It, but. So your point is just that they, the Maccabees were kind of like Jewish superheroes. They were like, you know, these, these great uh, deliverers uh, that, that rescued us from the pagans who desecrated the temple. And uh, now, Jesus, if you really are the Christ, you, you should be delivering us from the Romans yeah. who are a desecration on our land, basically, mm-hmm. is your, that's kind of... Yeah, and then to say, I'm the good shepherd, and no one snatches my people from my hand. There's your great act of deliverance. I, I play good defense. Don't don't worry about my offense. <laughs> yeah. yep. So you could, if you wanted to bring in, like Jeremy said, superheroes, and you were going <laughs> to see, I said superheroes. Oh, boy. That... Oh, man, look at the time. I need to get going here. <laughs> you could do, you, you could... You could talk about... That's why you liked my chapel so much, isn't it? <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, yeah. Uh, but the, the the imagery that comes to mind is Steve Rogers in the first Avengers movie, uh, the first Captain America movie, where he's just a regular guy and he's getting beat up. And yet he, he's in the back alley and he says, I can do this all day, you know, but he's going to keep getting beat up. And then he becomes the superhero of Captain America. And you can talk about how that, that goes on. But at the end of uh, the last of the great movies where he's got his shield and then because he's worthy enough, the whole crowd in the theater is, is geeked out when he actually can carry also Thor's hammer because he's worthy. You know, he is the superhero of superheroes. Well, that's, I mean, if you really wanted to go that far to talk about Jesus, if you're comparing to the superheroes of the Maccabees. Jesus looked like an ordinary person, but he's he is that Messiah, the one that rescues them all. Mm-hmm. There you go. Nicely done. Yeah. And a segue to the second lesson kind of too, right? There you go. <laughs> Who is both humble and he is also king, right? He is, he is both lamb and shepherd. And shepherd. Oh, that's right. Uh-huh. Okay, now I get it. Uh The epistle is Revelation chapter 7. John writes, After these things I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing in front of the throne and of the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They called out with a loud voice and said, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders spoke to me and said, These people dressed in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Because of this, they are in front of the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. They will never be hungry or thirsty ever again. 
The sun will never beat upon them, nor will any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Before we get into this, we have a, a class on Thursday mornings that is right next to my office in the nursery for uh, autistic children are three to five, and and I begin every day with a with a prayer, and we sing "Jesus Loves Me." Uh, and one of the kids I met today for the first time, his dad is a really big Star Wars fan. His the the child's name is Anakin Odin, so Anakin Skywalker and Odin, the the father of Thor. And I texted that to my wife Shelley, and I said, "This kid's name is Anakin Thor. That's awesome." Maybe that's why God didn't give us any boys. And she said, oh, I know. <laughs> uh, so, so, Brian, as the Lamb began to open the seven seals, I'm going to set, set the background for our, our listeners. John saw many horrible things in store for Christ's flock on earth. Uh, he says in Revelation 6, he sees there be false Christs, war, famine, and death. Uh, later on, many Christians are going to be slain for their testimony, and finally the great day of God's wrath would come, causing many to hide in terror. And then we get into chapter 7. As Christ's flock on earth watched John's vision of this great tribulation come true, what are they going to be tempted to do? Uh, run in terror, hide in a hole somewhere, um, or even worse, fall from faith. Yeah, I think wondering, is the great shepherd... Is he watching? Mm-hmm. Is he is he keeping his promise that no one's going to pluck them out of my hands? Is he keeping that promise that, lo, I am with you always? Uh, are they? Is he really going to give them that gift of eternal life? So then, Jeremy, how does the good shepherd answer these questions from his sheep? You know, can is he really a good shepherd? Is he really going to protect us? Uh, yes. Um. He uh, he's sitting on a throne that that says he's in charge. Um, he is um, it's it's the throne of God. Um, he is he's called a shepherd. A shepherd is the guide, and uh, also he's the lamb. That means he can relate to how the sheep are feeling. Um, I think that uh, earlier that this he was called a lamb that looked as if he had been slain so not only does he know how the sheep is feeling he knows how the very worst of the worst of sheep uh have felt it, it when with uh, the hardships they face yeah and i think also he is answering the the sheep's question by taking their eyes off of earth and what's going on here and he's directing their eyes toward toward heaven so so brian who is this multitude and what does it mean when the EHV translates this in verse 14, these are the ones who are coming out as opposed to those who, it used to be translated, those who have, who come, have out. come out. Why is that different, those who are coming out? Because it's still happening, isn't it? These are the believers uh, who's, who have gone to glory, have become part of the church triumphant, and every time a, a saint departs this earthly life, they are coming out of the great tribulation. So, you know, the Lamb is still fulfilling what he said he would do, making sure that the devil would not snatch any of his sheep out of his hand. And the minute he takes us from this earthly life, you know, that promise is really fulfilled and made eternal, isn't it? And we become part of that great multitude. Today I'll be with you in paradise. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so I just had a funeral on Sunday. I had been off for last week. My wife and I were down in San Antonio for a week for our 25th anniversary in the ministry with Excelling in Grace with a seminary. And then I come back for examination, confirmation, and a funeral all on the same day. And But one of the things I said in the sermon uh, for Charles, who was 96, uh, he had fought in World War II in the Navy. And it was really interesting, and I talked about this in, in the sermon, is that he had three older brothers, and they all also fought in different branches of the military. And the 18 years that I ministered to him, they always had the four brothers' pictures in the uniforms up in the same place. It was really cool. And, but, to, but to be able to say to the congregation that was there for the funeral is that uh, Charles is now no longer in his wheelchair, but now he's standing around the throne of God. He's no longer waiting for breakfast. Now he is uh, seated at the banquet feast of God. Uh, Psalm 23, verse 6, the psalm for this Sunday, uh, that he's no longer dressed in his bedclothes, but now he's in his white baptismal gown, his uh, the white robe of Christ's righteousness. He's no longer fighting, whether in a war or just being in the church militant, but now he's in the church triumphant. But that's all that coming out of the great tribulation. And then on Monday, after the the committal at the cemetery, the oldest brother, Dan, or oldest son, Dan, he talked to me and said, Pastor, I didn't get a chance to talk to you yesterday after the funeral. He said, I've been to a lot of funerals, and that was the best one. He said, it was the best because I've been to a lot of funerals that were good. They preached the right stuff, but it was boring. It was dry. And then he said, and then I've been to a lot of funerals that was just fluff. There was nothing about Christ. You know, you had the right amount that it was God's word, and it was it was interesting too, and so the, so and he said that he had a lot of people. Not that I need to be complimented, but because I don't know how you can make a funeral sermon boring, <laughs> and there you can't be fluff there, not in a good funeral sermon because there's so much so much here. Uh, so then, Jeremy, who is this multitude? It is uh, all the believers, the Church Catholic. It's the uh... A universal total sum of everyone with faith in Christ. Um, they uh, they they come from all these places where mission work has been done, and uh, they're they're a di- they're a diverse group. Um, I don't know what what more do you want to hear. Well, I I, I talk about this too. They're the he, flock, the flock of the good shepherd. Okay, yeah, and he says there's so many you can't count, but. You know, earlier in Revelation 7, he just counted them. There's 144,000. So is John wrong? Did he but, count them 144,000? He says there are too many? He's showing you that the, that number is, uh, there, there's, a, there's picture language involved with the number. That, so what uh, we is that picture language? Yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take the number as a literal number. Um, it, it's, it's saying, it, if you, would, if you would do all the division of uh, the, the numbers that contribute to it, you end up getting 10 and 12. Uh, it's the number of God, his church, 12 uh, or 24, God interacting with his church, and 10 being the number of completeness. Uh, so everything is done now. The, all the uh, believers have been selected and, and they are entering eternal glory. 
to uh, to piggyback on the whole idea of completeness, um, looking at verse 12, the seven things that are mentioned there, those seven things that belong to God, and um, also God's number of completeness. So, you know, everything that God has done is full and complete. When Jesus says it's finished, it's finished. And um, that's why we have the confidence of what's waiting for us to be part of that multitude, um, part of that 144,000 sealed by God in heaven. Then let's just look at uh, verses 15 through 17. We're just kind of going to go around the three of us, maybe explain to our listeners what each of these phrases mean. Uh, Because of this, they're in front of the throne of God. What does that mean? Why is that a comfort? Everybody's always wanting to see God and uh, kind of demanding it even. Uh, If God was real, why doesn't he show himself? Well, now, now... for believers, you will get to see you will get to see him. You'll be before his throne. I remember talking to one of my members. His wife had died three or four months earlier, and then he told me in church one Sunday, uh, with tears in his eyes, he goes, "I have cancer. I'm going to be going to see my wife soon." And I said, "Well, and Jesus." He goes, "Oh yeah, and Jesus." And <laughs> just to remind people, uh, and I think you and I we've talked about this, Jeremy. That I, I try and remind people. You're not so much going to heaven. You're going to see Jesus. That's our main focus. We're going to be with Jesus. Yeah, it's nice we're going to be in heaven. We'll talk about some of those things. But the main thing, let's be with Jesus. But even when Esther had to ask to have access to the king, I mean, that's not something everybody gets. Um, But in heaven, we're just there at the throne of God um, with direct access to our Heavenly Father. So I'm going to go back to Jeremy with this one. So they serve day and night in his temple. So... Jeremy, is heaven really filled with ice cream, roller coasters, and puppies? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So he, he's making reference to the fact that I was telling the the little kids in the grade school about how uh, serve God in heaven means we have to do work. There's going to be work in heaven to do. And, and that might sound scary, doesn't it? Because you don't want to do jobs. You don't want to work when you're supposed to be enjoying yourself. But I said, well, here's, here's the kind of work that means. You get to heaven, uh, or I should say, they get get to the new heavens and the new earth, and uh, God says to you, okay, here's your job. I've got a whole farm full of puppies, and I want you to take care of them. Here's your job. Uh, I've got all these flavors of ice cream. I've got to serve some of them at my heavenly parties. I want you to please pick out, decide which ones I serve. I, I want you to ride all the roller coasters and uh, uh, do the advertising for the good ones and tell my angel workers to improve the ones that need improving. That's the kind of jobs that you can <laughs> expect to serve to serve God day and night in his temple. There you go. Yeah, And the kids were getting all amped up about yeah. petting puppies and riding roller coasters eating ice cream. That's, Sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brian, what does it mean God will spread his tent over them? Oh, man, you gave him the hard one. <laughs> um, well... Are there going to be puppies in the tent? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> and ice cream. It, you know, having kind of flashbacks to camping where there were raccoons all over uh, in the middle of the night, and we were trying to make sure they didn't come into the tents. But uh, when God spreads his tent over us, um, I guess my mind goes to the tabernacle, that dwelling place of God among his people. And um, mentioned in the Gospel of John, too, that um, God will tent with his people. And in heaven, that's an eternal uh, 
tent that God will have spread over us. So just the idea of being in God's presence, uh, safe and sound, the Holy of Holies, his glory, all those things, and we're right there in the midst of it all. And he covers... Uh, you could even talk about the, the, the cloud, maybe, of the Old Testament, too, just that God's presence there on earth, but that covers us in heaven, and we won't be afraid or in terror or anything like that. We'll just be safe and secure. And then I'll do these two. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst of... They're bringing in that psalm, uh, the last two verses of Psalm 23. Again, the psalm for this Sunday of Good Shepherd Sunday, uh, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23, of sitting at the banquet feast of God. Uh, So God's always going to feed us. We're never going to be hungry. We're never going to thirst, not like this earth. Uh, What about, Jeremy, the sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat? Well, here in Wisconsin, we're uh, getting excited about the summertime. Uh, we've had, you know, the coldness of winter and, and less the sun. Yeah, the coldness of spring. I told my daughter, <laughs> Bell on Monday, I said, someday it's going to be warm and dry again. It may, I said, it may not be in your lifetime, but someday, because we have had, it's just been so cold. It's, yep. uh, Brian and I have to go out, to, I have to ref soccer. He's going to watch his girls play soccer in a little bit. And it's going to be like 40 degrees out there, and the fields are still sopping wet. <laughs> this is the opposite, though, what we're but, talking well, about. Well, but that's just it. Even when it's nice and sunny, uh, we, we've still got hardships. We've still got things that make us cranky. Oh, I got, you know, oh, I got some sunburn, or, uh, you know, oh, I got to be working out and in, in sweating in the hot, hot sun. And uh, it's like, no, that all of the... And, and that's the big thing with this whole section is... Um, uh, yeah, I, I described it as uh, uh, puppies and roller coasters and ice cream, but uh, really the biblical way to describe heaven is all of the things it's not, and that's what you see here. There, there's no pain, there's no boredom, there's no uh, uh, anger, uh, sadness, whatever the bad thing is, is not going to be there. And and again, I said heaven, and this was my Easter sermon. I, I'm trying to get people to say, let's, let's, we need to stop saying heaven so much. The way the Bible says it is it's the new heavens and the new earth. It's a new creation, uh, the, the new ground under our feet and the new sky over our heads with our resurrected bodies. Brian, what about this phrase? How can this be possible, this paradox of the lamb will be their shepherd? How can Jesus be both lamb and shepherd? As the lamb, he's the one who made the sacrifice. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said about him. So he's the one that was slain for our sins. But then as our risen and living shepherd, uh, he's the one who calls us by name. He's the one who comes to us through his word. And he calls us to himself, and that's the, the word that we listen to and follow throughout our lives. So the sacrifice, and then also the one who leads and guides us. When I was working on this question for a Bible study for us here at Water of Life, I was looking in the hymnal to see if this hymn from the supplement made it in, and I was kind of disappointed it wasn't, uh, because it, it just, four verses of paradoxes, and you know, like, lamb, shepherd, king, servant, host, and meal, and just, I love those paradoxes, like you and I as saint and sinner, uh, you know, this is that paradox. We can't explain it, but both explain who Jesus is. I'll do this one. He will lead them to springs of living water. You know, 
That's one of the images of water of life. That's us uh, and our congregation. Uh, come to the water of life. In God's words, you can have that water of life in heaven. And then God will wipe every tear from their eyes, Brian. The sadness of earth is gone. Uh, the veil has been lifted. That's what I preached on for Easter from Isaiah, that, that veil lifted. And uh, all the sadness, death, mourning, crying, or pain, all gone. And notice who does it. God's the one who wipes the tears away. And that's through what, his, that's through what the lamb and the shepherd have done for us. So I have one more question for you, Jeremy. So does Jesus really have a sling ring? Like Doctor Strange, so you can open up a dimensional gateway to, to go between heaven and earth. Jesus doesn't need a sling ring oh, to do that. Okay. <laughs> you want to you want to explain why he asked that so question? So I you? started. This is why he liked my chapel devotion so much, is because I started by telling the kids, uh, "You ever see those superhero movies where the with uh, uh, Captain America and uh, Thor and uh, Spider Man, and some of those magicians can open up the portals." to different worlds or different times or different spaces in this world. Well, I'm here to tell you today that those are real. <laughs> you, that, that this is actually in the Bible. Uh, there are visions that God gave of other worlds, and uh, this is what John had. And so that was kind of how I started. I was like, imagine that there was this space portal that opens up right here in church, and you can see into heaven and all the people that are there, and imagine your face there. And... Uh, that's yeah, and yeah. I'm and he's talking about all this. I'm I'm sitting in the back going, it's Doctor Strange, not a generic superhero, not a super <laughs> wizard. It's it's not just opening it up. It's th- using a sling ring, and it's not a, just a portal. It's an inter <laughs> interdimensional can, gateway. But did, can 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 we ask? Would Julia know who Doctor Strange is? Julia, do you know who Doctor Strange is? She's shaking her head right now. No, no. has no clue. No. To be honest, so, I don't so, either. So, let, okay, and that's why I didn't mention Doctor Strange. Yeah, I, I don't know what we're sling rings. Is that what sling rings? Yeah. Okay. He can't just. He's whip one it of he's one of the Marvel. Uh, yeah, he, pantheon. He, can't, he just can't do it. He's got to have a ring on his hand to do it. Awesome. In fact, the most recent Spider-Man movie, <laughs> Spider-Man actually. Uh, have you seen it? Yeah, I've it seen pulls it. it pulls his sling ring off of Doctor Strange. Yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything else you guys want to bring up in these two lessons? I, you know, th- thinking about the white robe we wear and all those things. I remember as a kid, uh, we'd go to my grandparents' house. They lived an hour away, and uh, after playing there all day, my parents would throw us all in the back seat of the 1985 Buick Lesabre. That was before you needed car seats and maybe even seatbelts and all that stuff too. But, um, and then we would drive the hour home, and we would fall asleep in the car, and it would always happen. We'd wake up in the morning in bed with our pajamas on. And uh, how did that all happen? Um, We went to sleep in one place and woke up in another with a whole different set of clothes on. And that's kind of what we're we're learning here, aren't we? That we fall asleep here on earth and we wake up with with this whole sling ring thing. I don't know what all that's all about, but we wake up in this new place and we have on uh, the victor's clothes, you know, the white robe and the palm branches and all that stuff. And just looking forward to what's waiting for us in eternity. All right. Very good. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Brian Schmidt. And in honor of track season, if you guys ever have any track meets at Shoreland, uh, Pastor with lightning speed. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>